Hello everyone, welcome to Drafting Archetypes. I'm Sam Black, and today we are going to be talking about uh, green-black counters in Zendikar Rising. I say green-black counters because I think that more often than not, you want to draft it in a way that acknowledges uh, counters as a primary, or as a theme to some extent at least. The extent to which you're dedicated to that can certainly vary, and we'll get into that, but for the most part, I think that your green-black decks are going to care about plus one, plus one counters to some extent. Before we get into that, I want to go over the standard business and thank all of my uh, patrons over on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. So um, thank you to uh, Stephen, Byron, Michael, Arthur, Adrian, Matthew, Arn, Ray, Jack, Jonathan, Parker, Alex, Eric, Kevin, Max, Johan, Daniel, and Baptiste. Appreciate the support. Uh, for anyone who's interested in uh, supporting the podcast, uh, supporting myself and my editor, and uh, getting to um, get some exclusive content and vote on which topics I will be covering, uh, check out the Patreon. Moving on to our uh, only content, uh, green, black, uh, counters and Zendikar. So, um, there's a lot to say about green, black. There's a lot of stuff going on, but not a lot of the stuff that I have to say about green, black is necessarily positive. Um, this archetype is in an awkward spot and I'm not going to pretend that it's one of the strongest archetypes or try to sell you on drafting it or anything. That's not really what I'm about. This is one of the weaker archetypes and this episode is going to focus on how to make the best of uh, the spots where it is what you should be drafting, how to figure out when you should be drafting it, and how to like understand what pressures there are that make it hard. So to start with, we're going to talk about when you should draft this archetype. And the answer is, if you can avoid it, you probably should, but when there are strong cards and it's what's open, it's not like it can't win. And um, if these are the colors that your spot should be, that your seat should be, I would encourage just going with it. Uh, if you have like a reason to, um, the green and black commons are not going to get you there by themselves. So. This is another one of those spots where I'm not ever going to look to be this deck unless I start with one of the actual powerful gold cards and the uncommon um, Moss Pit Skeleton is not going to cut it as far as like, I'm going to take this early and move into green black. I'm talking about specifically uh, Grackmaw, Skyclave Ravager, or Nyssa of Shattered Bows. Um, those are the two rare and mythic gold cards. They're both very powerful, and I would still take a lot of good uncommons in other colors over them, but I would first pick either of those cards out of a pack that where like I would otherwise be taking a common or something. And even then, I'd be happy to get off it, but if my next pack, uh, packs, this. Uh, green and black cards are among the stronger cards in those packs, then I'm willing to just like accept that this is going to be a green-black draft and see what I can do with it. And I have gotten 
like seven wins and best of one with green black and i do think best of one is not where you want to be in green black um i think green black as i'll get to in a little bit is much better suited to best of three the other cards uh outside of those things that say draft green black for sure that make me really think about green, being green black are also rares and those are Orin reef ooze and swarm shambler those are both uh Orin reef ooze is the three mana two two etb put a plus one plus one counter on something when it is hacks put an extra counter on all your things with counters and swarm shambler is the one one chronomaton type card uh comes with a it's a one mana green creature that comes with a plus one plus one counter whenever your opponents target things that have a counter you get a one one you can tap it in a mana to put another counter on it uh, but neither of these cards, both of these cards are very strong. Uh, the Ooze is stronger than the Shambler. Neither of them demand that you play black, but both of them are stronger in a deck that's both green and black. So I'll first pick those, and then I won't try to avoid black from there, and I might try to lean into counter stuff if that's the stuff that I'm seeing. The other way that I could end up here is if I get some... Uh, I mean, sometimes you just take a strong uncommon in one color or the other, and then a strong uncommon in the other color. Uh, and there are some, like, specific combos. So Marasa Sproutling. Um, that is the green 3-3 three, three for 3 uh, with kicker, return a kicker card from your graveyard to your hand uh, for 2 mana. And that card is best in blue-green kicker, obviously, but sometimes you first pick that and you're getting cut on blue because blue is really strong and people should want to draft it. And I think that card is next best in green-black, though you can find stuff to do with it in whatever. But uh, especially, it's, it's especially good if you can pick up Blood Chief's Thirst because that's a super super strong uh, kicker spell to be able to return um, obviously any of the kicker rares um, or blood beckoning Marasa Spratling plus bed, blood beckoning does the same kind of like inevitable loop that you get with uh, Tazima Royal Mage except way better because Marasa Spratling costs less and is stronger so Marasa Spratling is a card that is going to make me a little bit more likely to draft green black than other possible starts. There's some other combos, like specific, like uncommon synergies that come up in this archetype that I'm going to get to in a second that are not really reasons to be here, but rewards for being here to uh, reference a concept that uh, the uh, hosts over at um, Lords of Limited were introducing as a way to discuss paths and stuff for archetypes. Anyway, so the other like big tension with green black is like whether you are party or not party at all. There are there are a lot of interlocking ideas that I've kind of worked out that I want to talk about and so I'm going to kind of jump around in the order that I worked through things previously as it makes sense to me now. So fundamentally, the party strategies benefit from having cheap creatures on the battlefield because those cheap creatures party types make their spells stronger in some way, which means that you're incentivized and rewarded for having cheap creatures and casting them early. In green-black, 
a lot of the cheap creatures that you want to be playing are things like um, Gnarled Colony, and uh, that's the 2-mana two 2-2 two two that you can kick into a 4-4 four four that also has text about giving your creatures the plus one, plus one counters. Trample. Uh, and Ghastly Gloom Hunter, which is the one on Flying Lifelink. These cards are nice in that you can cast them early to avoid falling behind, but when you cast them early, they're at their weakest, whereas like the party, the cheap party cards are at their strongest when you cast them early because you get the most benefits from them being out and powering up your other party stuff. Whereas these things, if you cast them early, you just don't get to take advantage of their kicker elements. What that means is your creatures are best if you can cast them later and um, in general trading is really good for you because when you cast a creature it's basically there to buy you time for the other copies and other cards in your deck that are strong later to get cast and you're not it's not really generating any residual value by being in play because it's not powering up your other cards whereas like whatever random creature your opponent has probably is powering up their other cards so that means that green black wants to trade resources a lot especially because green black structurally in magic and uh, it's not different in this set and this archetype is stronger in the late game and generally good at grinding the fact that you want to trade a lot means removal is particularly good because removal those are cards that guarantee that you can trade resources with your opponent um, and also then if you have just some random kind of big creature you can potentially ignore some of your opponent's smaller like you can do all the things that removal does that's good but the incentives in this format are such that in most decks i end up devaluing removal because it's so important to me to build up my party whereas in green black uh, when I'm counters, there are counter synergies that exist between different creatures, and sometimes you end up in spots where your creatures are doing something that's greater than the sum of their parts because you're like getting these, you know, you have counters and you're getting payoffs that make all your stuff with counters better and everything. But all of that stuff is kind of doesn't invalidate the other points about how much more other people are getting out of party synergies than you're getting out of these counter synergies. So trading is really good. So removal is more desirable in green-black than it is in most other archetypes, maybe even all other archetypes. So all of the black removal spells and um, uh, the green removal spell that exists, Rabbit Bite, uh, plus like the uncommon fight land. I prioritize all of those higher when I'm drafting green-black than when I'm drafting something else. Knowing that I'm really highly prioritizing removal means that obviously I should be extremely high on uh, Deadly Alliance, which is arguably the strongest removal spell in my colors. The problem is Deadly Alliance is pretty bad if you have no party types. So the fact that you really want removal can lead to taking Deadly Alliance early, which can lead to telling you that you should be looking for creatures with party types, which can lead to drafting creatures that don't have synergies with what the archetype is looking for. So there's this tension with Deadly Alliance that you really need to watch out for, um, where like you do want it because removal is that good, but it's not like necessarily better than the other removal spells, and it can be kind of a trap. So navigating that trap and understanding what getting what party looks like in green black and like where you put yourself if you position yourself to have to care about it to some extent 
um, requires like a basic understanding of the tribal composition of the creatures in your in your colors. The only wizards that exist in green and black are Draga Visionary at common and Taunting Arbor Mage at uncommon. Taunting Arbor Mage isn't a creature that you want to play early, so it's not very good for supporting uh, party stuff. And it's also, I mean, it's fine in this archetype, potentially, whatever. Uh, it's not great if you have a lot of removal. Um, so the point, and it's also an uncommon, which means the point is if you're looking for wizards, you're basically all in on Draga Visionary. The good news is the Draga Visionary is a really good card, and it's good in this archetype, or at least acceptable in this archetype, regardless of whether you care about other party payoffs. It doesn't need you to have other tribes. It just helps you get uh, your like other tribes. It helps you count. It gives you a wizard to count for party for your other stuff. And it's very strong to recur with uh, Blood Beckoning or six mana black thing that returns two creatures, grave, whatever. Um, uh, that's one of the, that card is one of the best reasons to look for any creatures with party types in green and black. Um, even then, I think that I might just prefer a blood beckoning in the archetype in general. Um, yeah, Thwart the Grave is the title that I was looking for. I it started with the T, but I couldn't remember what it was. Draga Visionary, like Thwart the Grave is gonna make me prioritize Draga Visionary super highly if I'm green black. And Deadly Alliance is also going to increase the amount that I prioritize Draga Visionary. And I'm fine just like early on taking like, all right, I'll take this Draga Visionary and it'll let me do some party stuff a little bit better. But also I might cut it if I don't get anything that cares about party and it then end up with like a lot of plus one, plus one counter synergies. Um, and I would honestly hope to be there. I, I think the deck is better when all of your creatures are about doing the plus one, plus one counter thing. So... That leads to the next hardest uh, tribe to get in this archetype, or in this color combination, uh, which is Warrior. Uh, your only options are Dauntless Survivor, which is the 2-mana 1-1 that puts a plus 1, plus 1 counter on something. Marasa Brute, which is the 3-mana uh, 3-3 with no text. Highway, Highborn Vampire, which is the 4-mana 4-3 with no text in black. And Seagate Colossus. Dauntless Survivor works really well in this archetype because it naturally has a plus one plus one counter so it works with all your plus one plus one counter synergy stuff it's basically something that i'm happy to like draga visionary i'm happy to have it without any party stuff going on just to work with my counter stuff the other three cards are awful um seagate colossus is going to be hard to cast because you're not great at getting a high party count and you have much better expensive creatures and Marasa brute and highborn vampire are just bad cards so just as there's only one wizard uh, at common, there's essentially only one warrior that you're interested in playing at common. So that means that if you think that you're going to care about party at all, you really want to prioritize Draga Visionary and Dauntless Survivor exactly. And you can afford to prioritize both of those cards because both of them don't ask anything of you in terms of like doing party stuff. So those are kind of like your entry points or almost requirements to uh, try to seriously interact with party in this archetype. I mean, outside of obviously uh, Pack Beast and Veteran Adventurer and the rare Veteran Adventurer, the um, green creatures that have all the party types. So in the other two party types, Cleric and Rogue, there are about twice as many rogues as there are clerics because both green and black have, well, I mean, th whatever. There are twice as many rogues as clerics. However, uh, because you don't have blue, 
you're not good at enabling the uh, text on your rogues that asked for cards in your opponent's graveyard, which means that a lot of the rogues aren't at their best. Also, one of the common rogues is Drama Silencer, which doesn't play well, which is best when rogue is your least common party type rather than your most common party type, because you're most likely to get, uh, like, to kill a big thing um, off of your silencer. So, and, like, again, green-black has better stuff to do at the top end than silencer, unless you're, like, deep on, relatively deep on Dauntless Survivor and Draga Visionary or the all-tribe stuff to power it up and then have, like, recursion that makes it valuable to have a creature that's doubling those removable spell that you can uh, trigger multiple times. Like, unless you're doing a lot of Thwart the Grave and Blood Beckoning and, like, pretty committed to party stuff, Drawn Silencer is not where you want to be. Nemana Skittersneak, that's the uh, black 4-3 rogue that uh, gets plus 1, plus 0, and Menace if your opponent has a lot of creatures, or cards in their graveyard. Again, not really where you want to be because you're not likely to mill your opponent. That means that the rogues that you are interested in, if you're interested in any rogues, are basically there to provide uh, one of two things. In the case of Tijuru, Blight Blade, and Expedition Skulker, they are there to give you Death Touch, which is desirable because, as I talked about earlier, you're really interested in trading. And also, you might be very in the market to turn Rabid Bite into a powerful removal spell. It's not hard to imagine a spot where your deck really wants some death touch creatures and rogues are the way to get that the other thing that you really need to pay attention to in green black is having some kind of plan to deal with your opponent's flying creatures and uh tajiru's snare caster the one four reach rogue uh, which is generally unplayable but can have a place in exactly this archetype and Numana sky dancer the flash flying rogue that mills your opponent for two and is a three minute two one both give you a way to interact with flying creatures. Not necessarily the best ways, but this deck, this archetype, I mean, green-black in basically every format can really struggle with flyers, and both of those cards can uh, help with that issue. That's like what rogues are doing for you, uh, plus the uncommon rogues that are available are all pretty good. Um, and then the clerics that you're looking at are uh, the two black common clerics, the Blood Priest and the Blight Priest, um, which is the ET, the 2-1 that drains them and the 3-2 that makes them lose a life and you gain a life, and uh, Turn Timber Ascetic, which is the green 5-4 that gains through. All of these are like kind of acceptable if you're looking for clerics, but none of them are particularly exciting. They're also all better. Like The Blight Priest is good if you're doing a bunch of uh, little life gain stuff, which is going to happen primarily if you have... A large number of ghastly gloom hunters and uh, nectarpots, and if you don't have those, uh, you're not really interested in the blight priest. But if you do, it can actually be pretty good because doing damage to your opponent without like both of those uh, things are like two drops that let you gain life every turn, so you can keep triggering the blight priest, which is pretty nice. As to how good those cards are, uh, Ghastly Gloom Hunter is basically just great in green-black and is a fairly high priority for a number of reasons. The Nectar Pot is going to depend primarily on whether you have uh, Scion of the Swarm, which is the 5-mana uh, 3-3 three, three flying black creature that gets plus 1, plus 1 counter whenever you gain a life, which can kind of bridge party stuff and plus 1, plus 1 counter stuff and is a very strong card if you have like ways to trigger it every turn and... Uh, Gloom Hunter and Necropot are both ways to do that. So you can 
end up in this like spot where you are trying like you have these clerics that pay you for gaining life and you have these two drops in both your colors that let you uh, repeatedly gain small amounts of life to get those triggers that's like kind of a niche sub theme that can emerge in some versions of this deck and a time when i'm most interested in doing that well i mentioned very highly prioritizing removal spells in this archetype and feed the swarm is a card that is much better uh, the more life gain you have in your deck and this deck really wants cheap removal so you would really like feed the swarm to be good so feed the swarm can put you down a path where you're even more highly looking for having like the life gain element in your deck and that can be a reason to play turn timber aesthetic that is kind of what's going on with all the party creatures i spent a lot of time talking about that i hope the takeaway was oh yeah there's not a lot here not okay now i know how to draft party stuff here um i, I like i said i don't think parties where you want to be but like i have to acknowledge that cards like deadly alliance and stuff and some of the uncommons are going to make you want to think about it the other direction uh is to just like move all in on creatures that give counters and creatures that give creatures with counters extra abilities and cards that interact with creatures with counters and i personally have had more success there things that are going on there primarily you have uh ghastly gloom hunter and Skyclave Sentinel uh, as your flying creatures, which are really important because, again, this archetype can struggle with opposing flyers. Um, but having these flying creatures, especially when you have cards like Subtle Strike that can power them up um, and potentially Goldrow's Mucklord, uh, which is the three mana, two, three, that when it dies, you can put a plus one, plus one counter on something. Oh, and Gale the Heights, um, which is the green sorcery that lets you play an extra land and puts a counter on something. Uh, so they're like three different commons that you're interested in playing there's also the green counter for party thing that theoretically bridges these archetypes but i don't recommend touching it that let you play skyclave sentinel on three mana and then oh uh, and obviously also dauntless survivor so four good ways to put uh, counters on things are common all of those let you play skyclave sentinel on three and then put a counter on it and then you have this uh three four flyer that can attack um that's like generally like skyclave sentinel put a counter on it is kind of one of the stronger things you're doing in green black among the commons so that's like actually something to watch for other stuff that's going on is like you have hogger constrictor which is the uh three mana zero zero that etb put to or that comes into play with two counters on it and then uh gives all your creatures with counters on the menace this card is a three mana two two which is to say is horrible by itself but when all of your creatures are doing this counter stuff uh the menace is actually a really big deal giving all of your creatures menace is so much better than having just like a creature with menace or something because it means that anytime you're in a board stall where both of you are just like playing more and more creatures uh only half your opponents like essentially like only half your opponent's creatures can block or like it's it's just much easier to get to at the point where uh an alpha strike just kills your opponent also hogger constrictor just like automatically has counters which means that it plays well with some uncommons that are about that uh like it will always like when you cast it let you return a moss pit scorpion from your graveyard to your hand to your deck uh whenever it like dies you'll draw a card if you have skyclave shadow cat which is the uh four mana three three that draws a card when a creature with a counter dies and you can sack a creature to put a counter on it and uh you'll always get two one ones when you cast it when you have an iridescent horn beetle which is the three four that gives you counters 
gives you tokens when you put counters on things. Um, so it's a really weak card. You can get it really late, but it's actually strong when this is the thing that you're doing. Yeah, and then like the, the Muck Lord is like just fine. Like it, a three mana two three is not particularly good, but if you can trade it with something and put a counter on something, that's like really nice. It's good with Shadow Cat where you can sack it to like power up the Shadow Cat and power up something else. And now when those things die, you're drawing cards for them. The issue with all of these things is it's a bunch of really weak cards that nobody wants that uh, like you really need them to be better than some of their parts. And they are, but they're not that much better. <laughs> so that's the bad news. The good news is, as I said, no one else wants them, which means you don't need to use picks on them in the first half of the pack, which means you can spend all of your early picks taking the removal that I'm saying that your deck values more highly than other people and just expect all of these like creatures that you're looking for that no one else is looking for to float to you late. I mean, maybe you prioritize Territorial Scythe Cat, which is the uh, 2-1 that gets a counter when you play a land. But honestly, that card is less important for green-black than it is for green-white anyway, and green-red. Um, like, the landfall part of that matters a little bit more than the counter part of it, but it's good in your deck, whatever. Um, that, that's the one that you have to fight for. To, to sum up what I've covered so far, um, try to avoid drafting the deck unless you get really powerful uncommons and rares that put you down this path. If you are down this path, you want to prioritize removal, plan to table all the creatures that you're looking for that aren't super powerful uncommons, and um, you want to have a plan for opposing flyers. If you are doing anything that looks for party, prioritize Draga Visionary and Dauntless Survivor most highly among creatures with party types. Other, other things to talk about here. Um, I mentioned that I was going to come back to talking about some like random like little synergies that come up can come up in this archetype for example iridescent horn beetle which is the uncommon that makes creatures when you get counters combines with skyclave shadow cat which is the uncommon that sacrifices creatures to put counters on itself create this like little mini engine where you can spend two mana to put a plus one plus one counter on your shadow cat and then remake your one one doesn't really get you very far but it is a synergy that exists between these two uncommons the problem with a lot of uh, what's going on in green-black is like you're generating these like kind of like weird engines where it's synergies between creatures that are expensive for payoffs that are pretty minimal. And basically you're like worse at making engines than white-black, but that's one that you have access to. Um, and then uh, Iridescent Horn Beetle also is like uh, very synergistic with Vastwood Surge and so Shadow Cat and Horn Beetle are both like Vastwood Surge is just like amazing in this archetype because it you know makes sure that like your uh, Hogger Constrictor is giving all of your creatures menace all your Skyclave Sentinels and everything can attack if you have Horn Beetle you just make a million one ones um, if you have Shadow Cat whenever any of your creatures die you draw cards um so I, another thing that I kind of mentioned briefly earlier was my statement that green-black is a lot better in best of three than best of one. The reason for that is that green-black is not really the best deck at any particular stage in the game. 
Uh, it's kind of sandwiched between a lot of different decks that excel at doing certain things. It needs to position itself pretty differently in all those different matchups. And it does have a lot of flexibility and it does have a lot of interaction. And it can use a lot of bad cards, which means that, and it's underdrafted because it's not very good, which means uh, anytime you're drafting it, you'll probably end up with a huge abundance of playables and you can prioritize taking like sideboard cards and cards that are good in certain matchups. And when you're playing best of one, you just don't get anything out of the fact that you end up with way more cards that you can realistically play than you're going to want to use. A lot of your strongest cards are not necessarily good against everyone. Blood Beckoning is amazing, but if you're playing against someone who is threatening you in a way that doesn't involve letting you trade off your creatures very much, it's not a card that you want, or not, at least not a card that you want a lot of. Um, you have a big problem with flyer, flyers, but it's pretty easy to get a lot of broken wings. You can like kind of safely main deck one of those if you don't have a lot of ways to answer flyers, but it's easy to draft like three of them, and then you're really good against flyers after sideboarding, but you're you can't take advantage of that in best of one. There are just a lot of a lot of the cards in this archetype are uh, good against certain cards or certain decks and not good against others, and you also just like need to figure out like okay is my opponent if my opponent's playing blue there's a good chance they have a better late game than i do if my opponent's not playing blue i almost certainly have a better late game than my opponent and i'm basically just trying to stay alive but like you it's hard to know like okay well do i need to like be aggressive and prioritize stuff like hydra constrictor so that i can like beat the blue decks before their like actual card draw buries me or do I need to just like be defensive and stay alive so I don't get like run over by the red and white aggro decks or uh, by the like various flyers? And it's just like really, really hard to thread that needle in a main deck configuration with this deck. So I would I would recommend much more strongly avoiding this archetype in best of one and being a lot more open to drafting it in best of three. I think I've covered most of it. I mean, I could go over some notes on some specific cards like. I think Oblivion's Hunger is really strong if you are like actually doing the counters thing. I think Spare, spare Supplies is a pretty high priority uh, because this is a deck that really cares about hitting on slam drops and trading, and you don't have access to a lot of like rock art advantage um, outside of like Draga Visionary, which only sort of counts. On the flip side, I don't like Mind Drain very much. Uh, I just like I'm sure it's really good in some matchups, but. I often just don't feel like I have a chance to play it. I feel like it's just too important to be affecting the battlefield. And I kind of like don't have that much trouble getting getting to a situation where I'm doing strong enough stuff in the late game that I have enough ability. And I feel like it just makes it more likely that I fall behind and lose early. I think like Kazandu Stomper's fine late game, uh, even though it doesn't have explicit synergies with the other stuff. If you have like DFCs to pick up, if you don't, it's probably not very good. That covers my thoughts on Green Black. Hope that clears up uh, any questions you had about whether this is something you want to touch and what to do if for some reason you should. I think that it's important to talk about making the best of archetypes even when you shouldn't necessarily be looking to draft them, and this is one such case. So in two weeks, uh, Kaldheim will be available on Arena, and I will be doing my absolute best to find a, at least one archetype that I feel comfortable talking about uh, by the time that uh, that evening happens. 
I will not be setting up a poll about which archetype to cover. I'll be covering whichever archetype I feel like I have the most uh, knowledge about uh, because I won't have time to learn a lot about every archetype at that point. Um, as for next week, I am likely doing uh, one more archetype in Zendikar because I don't think we'll have the full spoiler or that I'll have enough information but I reserve the right if the full spoiler is up by then um, and I feel like I have something to say to jump right into Kaldheim. Uh, I also might end up putting up a poll that has some other options. That That's future business. It'll be uh, available. The information will be there in the uh, Patreon for those of you who are uh, participating in selecting future content and stuff like that. But yeah, I'm not totally sure what I'm doing. Uh, thank you everyone for tuning in this week. As always, I uh, appreciate everyone checking out and sticking with this content, even as we're getting toward, uh, we can generously call this the end uh, of uh, Zendikar Rising's time. Hope everyone else is as excited for Kaldheim as I am. A reminder again, if you're enjoying this content and want to uh, support it and uh, let other people know about it, please leave any sort of you know reviews or ratings or likes or follows or whatever it is that is applicable to the platform on which you're consuming this check back for the bonus content where i answer questions from people who are with me right now in uh twitch chat hey everybody spencer here i am the editor of drafting archetypes and i just wanted to quickly let you know that we both sam and i have gotten some feedback that actually people want the bonus content to be combined with the regular episode so we're actually going to do that this week so we're going to switch over right now to Sam answering questions from Twitch chat. If you want your question answered on the show, don't forget to head on over to patreon.com and you get prioritized if you are a patron of $10 or more. Thank you everybody so much and enjoy the rest of this week's episode. Hello everyone, welcome to the bonus question and answer round of uh, drafting archetypes coverage of green black counters in Zendikar Rising. Uh, jumping straight into questions. Uh, first up, I'm going to cover what do I think of splashing for black removal in blue-green kicker? So um, this is only vaguely about green-black, but it is a very realistic consideration for how to use black cards if you start green-black or if you just like start black and then end up shifting into... like. It's important to know how to pivot, and knowing how to pivot out of green-black is definitely something that you'll want to look to do. So the answer here is that I don't think I've ever done it. And the reason that I've never splashed black removal in blue-green kicker is most of my blue-green kicker decks are really bad at having party types, which means that I'm not particularly excited about Deadly Alliance in that archetype. And then the other removal spells I don't really think are worth splashing for. Uh, the one that, you know, I would love to be able to splash is Blood Chief's Thirst because it's a kicker spell, but the black black to kick it is um, kind of a deal breaker on splashing it for the most part, and it's not very strong if you can't kick it. In general, I'm really, really, really down on splashing in this archetype or in this format, and if I were to splash removal in uh, blue green, I would base I would much, much, much rather splash for royal eruption. Um, since it has kicker and is like independently stronger than any of the black removal spells. So I have not found a spot where I personally would want to splash for black removal and I draft blue green kicker a lot. 
The next question is, green has a couple of cards that find lands. I get them primarily, uh, I get they're primarily for landfall synergies, but how common should splashing be in green? So I think that um, the, so the cards that get lands in green um, are Vastwood Surge, which is not so much about land, like it, it is great with landfall, but it's, uh, as much about kicker and plus one plus one counters as anything else it does a lot of, it does a lot of different things and vastwood surge is great in green black vastwood surge is not amazing for splashing because you can't find your colors with it until you have four mana and you would ideally often rather save it until you have eight mana so it's like not great to have to cast it to get your like colored mana to cast a splashed card um, then there's uh, Reclaim the Wastes, which is the kicker lay of the land, kicker search your library for a basic land. Uh, if you kick it, search for two, which I think of as primarily like for kicker. Um, it's like, you know, it's really good if you have Vine Gecko, especially the curve of Vine Gecko followed by kick Reclaim the Wastes to put a counter on Vine Gecko on turn three to ensure that you're hitting your next land drop so that you can kick your other stuff um, is like really good and a really high, good reason to prioritize Reclaim the Wastes. And then also just like if you are a deck that has a bunch of cards that trigger when you kick stuff, it's a way to kind of potentially replace lands with a card that can trigger that kicker stuff while helping you hit extra land drops for your other kicker cards. Not, not I, I have played it in some landfall decks just like to draw extra lands, but that's not really what it's for. And then uh, Royal whatever, the Harrow, uh, the instant that sacks land to get two lands. That one I do agree is like largely for landfall. Um, it does help you splash a little bit. Anyway, the point is I'm not really looking to prioritize Reclaim the Wastes unless I have uh, Vine Gecko or Morassa Sproutling. Morassa Sproutling doesn't make me prioritize Reclaim the Waste super highly, but it is an easy way to get a kicker, kicker card in the graveyard in an archetype that may or may not have a lot of kicker cards that I can easily get in the graveyard, um, just to be able to get some value out of the Sproutling. That means that I don't generally have a lot of Reclaim the Wastes. If I do, I'm potentially willing to splash, but I, again, I really do just try to avoid it if I can. Long story short, I think splashing should be relatively rare and green, though there are occasions where you want to, especially spots where you get a lot of DFCs early, so you can play a high land count to make the mana work better. Next question, I mentioned spare supplies being good. Is that due to the abundance of playable three drops and lack of two drops I want to play on turn two? Um, how many three drops is too many? And if I do have an upper limit of three drops, what should the rest of the curve be, uh, be like? It is definitely true that a lot of the counter stuff uh, is three drops. The um, Mucklord and Hogger Constrictor and Skyclave Sentinel and Territorial Scythecat are all three drops. But also there are a lot of two drops. Unkicked Gloomhunter and Colony and uh, Moss Pit Skeleton plus uh, Dauntless Survivor and Nectarpot. So there are a lot of twos and a lot of threes and not a lot of things that have to cost more mana than that that I'm interested in. Basically just Draga Visionary 
Turn Timber Aesthetic and Kazandu Stomper uh, among commons that I'm particularly looking to play that cost more than three. Uh, though there are a lot of uncommons that I'd be happy to play that cost more. So I'm mostly looking to have the top of my curve be kicker cards and strong uncommons. As for like general curve question and how it relates to spare supplies, yeah, I like to... So because a lot of the two drops are kicker cards, I'm often in a spot where whether I want to cast one of them on turn two depends on whether my opponent has a creature. If my opponent has a creature, I probably want to cast a creature to keep up. But if they don't have a creature, I'm more likely to want to keep my creature to potentially be able to kick it if the game goes in such a way where I don't need to uh, play it to avoid falling behind. And in that situation, I'm pretty happy to play a spare supplies instead to like make sure I'm hitting my land ops or whatever. But also, you can just like curve out and then play spare spare supplies. It's not like that bad to just like find two mana later to cast it. So it's I think the spare supplies consideration is less about curve and more about I really want a divination and this is kind of the best I can do. I guess there's also the black four mana lose life thing, but losing life is really bad and. Four mana, not four mana all at once, not affecting the battlefield is pretty bad. As to like what your curve should look like, th three drops. There is a number that's too many, but like it's not uncommon for limited decks to have more three drops than other things. And like Skyclave Sentinel is like kind of a three drop, but if you have too many three drops, you're happy to just think of it as a late game card. The real answer here is that I hope to have enough kicker stuff that I'm not super worried about like what my curve is because the kicker stuff like gives me plays early and power late and then like the number of three drops that I end up playing is just like I guess the three drops a lot of them are kind of like functional but filler-ish and I want to just like play all of my like really good like four and five mana uncommons and like my synergistic two drops and then kind of just like fill out my deck with uh, the three drops that I don't really care if I'm playing or not playing. So I think I think the answer fundamentally is kicker means that curves are flexible enough that I'm not that obsessed about hitting certain numbers of different drops uh, in this format in general and in this deck in particular, archety archetype in particular. In best of three, when faced against uh, the deck that doesn't trade creatures well, but I consider swapping Blood Beckoning for Blood Price to keep uh, some card advantage engine in the deck? That's a reasonable question. They're both four mana ways to uh, get up cards. And uh, I mean, I think fundamentally I'm going to say Blood Price is a good sideboard card. Uh, if your opponent is not aggressive, especially if you're playing against another like green-black deck or um, some black-white decks, though losing life is scary against a uh, black-white deck that has a lot of stuff that makes you lose life. And then, like, some of the slower blue decks. I, I think Blood Price is definitely a card that I'm much happier to side in than to main deck. And sometimes when I cut Blood Beckoning, it'll be to add Blood Price, uh, like, especially against blue decks that are not very aggressive, um, where I don't expect trading to happen. But some portion of the time that I'm cutting, cutting blood, blood Beckoning, it's just because... Um, my deck is fundamentally too slow and I just want more impactful stuff and then I wouldn't be looking to replace it with Blood Price I'd be looking to replace it with just like Broken Wings where maybe I think the reason that they're not trading is because they have flyers and I want a card that will trade with those flyers in general I think like 
you're not necessarily looking for like one-to-one -one substitutions that keep your curve intact in with sideboarding and limited in general. I think that uh, a lot of the time that you're sideboarding, your specific goal is actually to change your curve rather than to maintain your curve. And like the reason you're sideboarding is because uh, you either want to just like increase your curve because the matchup is kind of slow and you just want more total power in your deck. Uh, not power as in like the number at the lower, uh, the left left side of the lower hand corner of the card, but like strength, um, impact, uh, and then other times your opponent's really aggressive, their cards are low impact, and you just need to not fall behind. Um, and so, I, I think like in general thinking about how you're considering your sideboard and your sideboarding unlimited really shouldn't be like uh, I'm trying to maintain my curve. It should be how can I change my curve and when and why should I change my curve. It looks like that'll wrap up our questions uh this was a short uh question and answer session which makes some sense because it was a kind of long main topic discussion so i guess i did a good job of uh i'll hope that this means i did a good job of covering everything and um i will be back with whatever it is i end up being back with next week uh thank you again everyone for uh checking this out and sticking around for the bonus content as always remember if uh you're listening to this and there's something that I didn't cover that you wish I did. Uh, you have the power to influence that. Come and uh, check out the episode live Thursdays at uh, 6 p.m. Central Time and ask your questions and make sure I cover the stuff that you are interested in. That will wrap us up. Thank you, everyone, and good night.